welcome to First Incision, the podcast about preparing for the General Surgery Fellowship exam. I'm your host, Amanda Nikolic. Let's get started with our team timeout. Our patient today is the hepatobiliary module from the General Surgical Curriculum. Yes, you heard me correctly. We're leaving colorectal behind for the moment and we're moving on. The operation or topic we'll be covering today is hepatobiliary anatomy, embryology, and variations. So to start with, let's talk about the liver. So the embryology of the liver is that it starts as a liver bud, which is also known as a hepatic diverticulum, which appears at about three weeks of development as an outgrowth from the endoderm of the foregut. This outgrowth grows into a section which is called the septum transversum, which is part of the mesoderm layer. And this septum transversum that the liver bud is growing into will contribute certain cells to the liver. And this includes the cuffer cells, spelt K-U-P-P-F-E-R, as well as the stroma or connective tissue of the liver. By about 30 days into development, as the liver bud grows into the septum transversum, the connection from the liver to the duodenum starts to narrow, and this is what will become the bile duct, with a further growth appearing from the bile duct, which will become the gallbladder and the cystic duct. The hepatic cells from this uh, hepatic diverticulum then start to develop into cords, which intermingle and mix with the vitiline and umbilical veins to form the hepatic sinusoids. The vitiline veins eventually fuse and they end up forming the portal vein, the superior mesenteric and the splenic veins. The paired umbilical veins carry oxygenated blood to the fetus through the umbilicus. They initially drain into the sinus venosus, which is a connection between the portal vein and the hepatic veins, which basically allow the fetal blood to bypass the liver. And this then drains up into the hepatic cardiac channel and into the heart. The left umbilical vein will regress and become the ligamentum teres, which runs in the free edge of the falciform ligament. The continuation of this, the ductus venosus, becomes the ligamentum venosum for which there is a corresponding groove or fissure in the posterior inferior aspect of the liver. So let's talk about the liver itself. The liver is a large gland that sits in the right upper quadrant of the abdomen. It's curved superiorly in a convex fashion by the diaphragm and the ribs and has a more convex inferior surface which abuts the abdominal organs. It's invested in peritoneum, apart from the posterior surface, which is called the bare area of the liver, as well as the gallbladder bed and the porta hepatis. The peritoneum has a number of folds, which are called ligaments. The first of these I've already briefly mentioned, which is the falciform ligament. And this attaches the front of the liver to the anterior abdominal wall. And this is the one that has the ligamentum teres, which is the vestigial remnant of the umbilical vein, the left umbilical vein running in its free edge. This comes from the right aspect of the abdomen from the liver and runs across towards the umbilicus. So it can get in the way during the laparotomy and may need to be freed up. 
the falciform ligaments peritoneal fold comes down onto the liver um, and that then spreads out over the surface of the liver. More superiorly are the coronary ligaments and this is both an anterior and posterior leaf of peritoneal folds that borders that bare area of the liver in the posterior aspect. The left and right coronary ligaments anterior and posterior leaves come together laterally on both the left and right hand side to form a point. And these lateral aspects are called the left and right triangular ligaments. An important relationship to the anterior coronary ligament is that as you come more medially, these will sit just anteriorly to the hepatic veins. So if you're freeing these up and on your way medially, you have to be mindful that you'll be coming across those hepatic veins and not to injure them. Talking more generally about the liver can be divided into anatomical left and right lobes or functional left and right lobes. The anatomical division of the left and right lobes is the falciform ligament, which you can see running on the anterior surface of the liver. And this splits the segments lateral or to the left of that into the left lobe and the rest of the liver into the right lobe. This does not correspond to the functional functional lobes of the liver, which was published by Claude Quino in 1957, originally described by Ton Tat Tuang in 1936. The division of these lobes or the functional lobes is determined by the inflow and the outflow of the liver. The inflow, of course, being the hepatic triad, so the portal vein, hepatic artery and bile ducts, and the outflow being the three hepatic veins that drain into the inferior vena cava. The portal triad divides into both left and right sides, so left and right hepatic vein, left and right hepatic artery, and left and right hepatic ducts. Um, And these basically divide the left and the right lobes of the liver. This division is along a theoretical line, which can be drawn between the tip of the gallbladder and just to the right of the IVC. And that line on the outside of the liver corresponds with the anatomical or functional division within the liver. Further division of the liver from a functional point of view can be divided up into eight segments. Again, this was classified by Quino in 1957. It's worth looking up a picture of this as I'm talking through the description. Segment one is the caudate lobe, which sits on the posterior surface of the liver. Medially, the fissure for the ligamentum venosum borders the caudate lobe, and laterally it extends pretty much to the IVC, and it can wrap around the IVC. It's bordered inferiorly by the inflow to the liver and superiorly by the confluence of the left and middle hepatic veins. It's interesting as it does have mixed inflow in that it gets inflow mostly from the left side of the portal triad, but it does have some contribution from the right side. In addition, it doesn't actually drain into the hepatic veins. It usually has direct venous drainage into the inferior vena cava, um, often by one to three small veins. The next segments to talk about are segments two, three, and four. So these segments are all supplied by the left portal triad. So branches of the left portal vein, left hepatic artery, and the left hepatic duct. Segment two and three are drained through the left hepatic vein. And segment four is partially drained by the left hepatic vein and also by the middle hepatic vein. 
Segment two is the most lateral and posterior of the left lobe of the liver. Segment three is more medial to that. And segment four is also known as the quadrate lobe. The quadrate lobe can be seen anatomically on the outside of the liver and is demarcated by the falciform ligament uh, medially and by the gallbladder laterally. Segment four is often split up into an superior and inferior segment, which is called 4A and 4B. So moving on to the right side of the liver, there is segment 5, 6, 7, and 8. And these travel in an anti-clockwise direction from inferior. So 5 is inferior and medial, 6 is inferior and lateral, 7 is superior and lateral and eight is superior and medial if you're looking at these in a diagram. But in real life, the right lobe of the liver actually goes sort of lateral and posterior. So segments uh, six and seven are actually quite posterior compared to segments five and eight. All of these four segments are supplied by branches of the right portal triad. So these are the right portal vein, right hepatic artery and right hepatic duct. But they are drained separately. So segments uh, five and eight are drained mostly through the middle hepatic vein. But some of segment six can be drained into the middle hepatic vein. Uh, But most of segment six and segment seven are drained by the right hepatic vein. So splitting up the liver a little bit differently, again, based on these anatomical segments, it can be thought of in four main parts. So this includes the left lateral or left posterior sector, which is mostly segment two, the left medial or left anterior sector, which is mostly segments three and 4A and 4B. And then the right side can be split into right medial or anterior sectors. And this is segments five and eight, um, or the right lateral, or remember it's more posterior, so also called the right posterior sector, um, which is segments six and seven. These sectors can be considered to be divided into these four parts by the three hepatic veins. So the lateral hepatic vein divides the left lateral and the left medial sectors. The middle hepatic vein divides the left medial and the right medial sectors and the right hepatic vein divides the right medial and the right lateral sectors. And this is something that you can use to identify which particular segment you're looking at on a CT scan. So what you do is you find these veins at the IVC and you scroll up and down and see where they're traveling and you can then split the liver up into four sectors. And then if you follow the portal triad and see where the left and right hepatic veins divide, this will divide the liver then into a sort of superior and inferior segment because these divide on a transversal or horizontal fashion. And so you can then say above or below that line splits um, the uh, segments up from there. Again, have a look at some pictures. Radiopedia has some great uh, images of livers split up into those different segments depending on the veins and the portal vein. So have a look at those to try to get your bearings on where all of these different segments are. We've talked a lot about the portal triad, the portal vein, hepatic artery, and bile duct. So let's talk a little bit more about those structures and also go into something they love to talk about in the exam, which are anatomical variations. 
So the liver receives its blood supply from two sources, both the portal vein and the hepatic artery. The portal vein contributes about 70% of the blood supply to the liver, with the hepatic artery only about 30%. The portal vein is formed by the confluence of the splenic vein and the superior mesenteric vein. This occurs approximately behind the neck of the pancreas, and this then becomes the portal vein, which travels up to the hepatis and divides into the left and right portal veins. The portal vein travels in the free edge of the lesser omentum as the most posterior structure of the portal triad. The common hepatic artery is a branch of the celiac trunk, along with the left gastric and the splenic arteries. It passes over the upper border of the pancreas and then down to the right-hand side along the posterior aspect of the lesser sac before turning forwards and traveling superiorly along the free edge of the lesser omentum, typically running in front of the portal vein and to the left side of the bile duct. The common hepatic artery gives off a couple of branches. The first is the right gastric artery, This usually comes off just before the pylorus and turns back to run along the lesser curve. This is important surgically as it's usually used as the blood supply to a gastric conduit when doing an esophagectomy. The other branch is the gastroduodenal artery, which usually arises just after the right gastric has come off. And this usually occurs just in front of the portal vein um, at the level of or just behind the first part of the duodenum. The gastroduodenal artery then courses behind the first part of the duodenum in front of the neck of the pancreas in a groove that's closely applied to the anterior pancreatic capsule. And typically this is the landmark that we use for um, how far you dissect when posteriorly mobilizing the stomach. The gastroduodenal artery can come off slightly higher up the common hepatic artery and can be confused for the common hepatic artery or the hepatic artery proper. And so often a bulldog clip is placed on this vessel to confirm that it's going to the liver um, before dividing it. The other clinically important thing about the gastroduodenal artery is that it is commonly the vessel involved in a bleeding duodenal ulcer as it runs behind the duodenum there and can be eroded into One option when you can't get control of that bleeding ulcer is to actually ligate the gastroduodenal artery just above the duodenum. And the gastroduodenal artery terminates as the right gastroepiploic um, and the superior pancreaticoduodenal artery. Once the common hepatic artery has given off both of these branches, the right gastric and the gastroduodenal artery, it becomes the hepatic artery proper, which as I've mentioned runs in the lesser omentum in front of the portal vein and usually to the right of the common bile duct um, before entering into the liver and it usually bifurcates in a Y shape into the left and right hepatic arteries. The other thing to know is that the Cystic artery typically will come off the right hepatic artery, usually on the right side of the right hepatic duct, and then this will pass laterally to reach the gallbladder, and typically there'll be an anterior and posterior branch. But not infrequently, there can even be two arteries or more. The other thing is that sometimes the cystic artery can come off the left side of the um, vessels and cross in front of the ducts. And also it can be very short and the right hepatic artery can be very close to the dissection between the gallbladder and the artery and in that situation it can potentially be damaged. 
going back to the left and right hepatic arteries, there are some variations that are important to know about. The first one is that there can be an accessory left hepatic artery, and this can come from the left gastric artery directly off the celiac trunk from the right hepatic artery, and even from the splenic or superior mesenteric artery. And this can be an accessory or a completely replaced vessel. Um, The common place that you might come across this is crossing the lesser sac, and you might see this as you're dividing the pars flaccida, crossing um, through the lesser omentum there. The other variation that there can be is an accessory or replaced right hepatic artery. And the most common origin for this is actually off the superior mesenteric artery. The important thing to know about that is that usually in that situation, the artery will run posteriorly behind the vein and then will pop out sort of to the lateral aspect of the portal vein and come anteriorly there. And it can be injured in that arrangement because it actually runs through the callous triangle. The last thing to mention is that usually the right hepatic artery will cross behind the common hepatic duct, but in about 20% of patients, it will cross anterior to the bile duct. Briefly, before we move on to talking about anatomy and variations of the bile duct, the blood supply to the bile duct up near the hyla section usually comes from the right hepatic artery and at the distal bile duct down near the pancreas it'll usually come from branches of the gastroduodenal artery and the blood supply is axial so there's little arteries that will run up at the three and nine o'clock position um, of the duct and supply the duct sequentially so if you do extensive dissection around the bile duct then you can injure the blood supply to that segment and it can become ischemic because the blood supply is coming from the top and from the bottom. So now to talk about the bile duct. The typical description of the bile duct is that the left and right hepatic ducts come together and come out of the liver as the common hepatic duct. At the point that the cystic duct joins into the common hepatic duct, it then becomes the common bile duct. The common bile duct below the um, origin of the cystic duct is considered in three parts. The supraduodenal part, which is above the first part of the duodenum, the retroduodenal part, which is behind the duodenum, and the paraduodenal part, which is in the groove in the back of the head of the pancreas prior to its insertion into the um, duodenum at the ampulla of Vata. That first proximal part, the supraduodenal part, is the most accessible at surgery and also is typically the part that's seen on ultrasound with bowel gas often getting in the way uh, for the lower portions of the bile duct. The right hepatic duct drains segments 5, 6, 7 and 8 and also receives um, some drainage from the chordate lobe segment 1. There's two main branches of the right hepatic duct and this is the right anterior and the right posterior sexual ducts also could be considered the right medial and right lateral but we're going with right anterior and right posterior the right posterior sexual duct is quite important um, because it can have varying anatomy and it's really important that it's identified at the time of an intraoperative cholangiogram in about two percent of people it will actually drain directly into the cystic duct and can be injured therefore and so that's why it's really important to view this when you're doing your cholangiogram 
The main right hepatic duct is often quite short in its extrahepatic length and will then join into the left hepatic duct. And this is considered the confluence, which then turns into the common hepatic duct. I've seen this described as like a Nike tick in that the extrahepatic right side is quite short and that the left is quite long, looking like the tick of the Nike symbol. The left hepatic duct um, can be quite long and is often in a sort of oblique course. It receives drainage from segments two, three, and four, and again, can receive a small amount of drainage from the uh, chordate lobe, segment one. So going back to that confluence, about 60% of people have a normal confluence where the left and the right duct unite outside of the liver, usually within about two centimetres of the um, exit of the right hepatic duct from the liver parenchyma. In the rest of the 40% of cases, there is variant anatomy. These different anatomical variations are usually described by the insertion of the right posterior or right anterior ducts inserting into the wrong place. So they might uh, insert into the common hepatic duct, further down into the common bile duct or into the cystic duct. The most common variation is that the right posterior sexual duct doesn't join the right anterior and then together as a trunk join into the left, but instead the left duct and the right anterior duct join together and then the right posterior will join in further down. Um, the other more common is that the right posterior sectoral duct is totally independent um, of the right anterior and it can cross posteriorly and join into the left duct itself. There are different classification systems, um, but the Quino, um, which was sort of famously published in Bloomgart Surgery, is a good one that classifies the variations into types A, B, C, D, E, and F. It's worth looking up some pictures of this, but basically A is the normal anatomy, B is all three ducts joining in together into the confluence, um, C one and C2 are basically the right posterior, either joining into the left hepatic or joining into the common hepatic. D1 and 2 are the right posterior joining into the uh, left hepatic again, um, or the right posterior joining into the common hepatic, but the right and left forming common trunk themselves. Type E is the E1 and 2, and they are um, pretty crazy if you look at the pictures, but basically all the ducts sort of joining in separately. And type F is where you have the right anterior and the left joining together and coming down um, and the cystic duct and right posterior duct joining in together or the um, right posterior going into the cystic duct. I guess uh, just pick a classification system and learn it for the exam. Um, it doesn't matter really, I think, which one you use. And just understanding that there can be those variations and how that clinically applies to what you might find at cholecystectomy and the importance of identifying the right posterior, especially when you're doing your cholangiogram. So we can't talk about the anatomy of the liver without mentioning the humble gallbladder. For such a little organ, it causes us a lot of problems as surgeons and personally is one of my least favorite pathologies to deal with. Anyway, talking about the gallbladder, basically it's a storage organ um, that sits on the inferior surface of the liver on the cystic plate. It functions to store and concentrate the bile secreted by the liver, um, and it consists of three parts. It's got a fundus, a body, 
and a neck. And in pathology, we'll also have a Hartman's pouch, which is usually caused by gallstones. It um, is adjacent to the quadrate lobe um, and thus the liver itself is its main anterior relation. The gallbladder is supplied by the cystic artery, which as we've talked about most commonly comes off the right hepatic artery. The venous drainage is typically directly through the uh, liver, into the liver itself, so through the cystic plate, um, and it drains through the cystic duct, which joins into most commonly the common hepatic duct to turn it into the common bile duct. The gallbladder's lymphatic drainage is into the cystic node, which typically sits just in front of the cystic artery at cholecystectomy. And then that then drains into the um, common hepatic uh, nodes along the epiploic foramen and then into the lesser omentum to the celiac group of preaortic nodes. Obviously, as most lymphatic drainage, this follows the vessels. Similar situation for the liver, the liver drains to the portohepatic nodes and then again down the artery um, all the way back to the celiac nodes. Interestingly though, the liver also drains through the bare area um, on the posterior surface of the liver and communicates with extraperitoneal lymphatics, which then can perforate through the diaphragm at that level and can also drain into posterior mediastinal nodes. The innervation of the liver is through sympathetics and parasympathetics. The sympathetic nerves come from the celiac ganglia um, and they themselves come from the greater, lesser and least splanchnic nerves, um, which come off the um, uh, sympathetic plexus and travel down um, to reach the celiac plexus. Um, The parasympathetic supply is from the vagus and there's often um, small vagal fibers that come off the left vagus and will travel across the lesser omentum and you can often see them in the pars flaccida and so it's um, you have to be careful not to transect those if you don't absolutely have to when you're um, opening up the lesser sac through the um, lesser omentum. Well that's all I can think to talk about for liver so we better move on to the pancreas. So starting with the embryology of the pancreas. During about the fifth week of gestation, the pancreas develops as two separate buds. Each of them are an outgrowth of the endoderm at the junction of the foregut and the midgut. The dorsal bud grows independently into the dorsal mesogastrium, and the ventral bud grows into the ventral mesogastrium. And this is the same as the bile duct, if you remember from early on in this episode. As the duodenum develops and rotates, the two buds rotate and come together and become adherent with the duodenum to the posterior abdominal wall. This is important because each of these buds originally has its own drainage system, its own pancreatic duct. And during this system where the two buds rotate and come together, the um, main pancreatic duct should become formed from the duct of the ventral bud and also the distal part of the duct from the dorsal bud. And these will come together and drain into the main duodenal papilla or the major duodenal papilla. The proximal part of the dorsal bud's duct will then become the accessory pancreatic duct and this will drain into the minor duodenal papilla, which is usually located one to two centimetres proximal to the major duodenal papilla. 
In general, the majority of the pancreas is drained through the um, main pancreatic duct, and it's usually the uh, part of the uncinate process that's drained through the accessory pancreatic duct. The reason this is clinically important is because sometimes this system is imperfect and there's errors, and there may be aberrant anatomy, such as um, pancreatic divism, which can cause recurrent pancreatitis. So the common variations are that the primitive accessory duct will persist and that there'll be two ducts and there won't be any communication between the two ducts. And this is called pancreatic divism. Other potential abnormalities are that the accessory pancreatic duct may atrophy and may not have a communication with the duodenum or it may just end blindly from the duodenal opening. Also, just to link back in with the liver and biliary anatomy, the pancreatic duct will typically run adjacent to the distal aspect of the common bile duct, usually over a course of 2 to 10 millimetres. And sometimes they will actually join completely in this course, forming a common channel which then trains into the ampulla of vata. It's also important to note that the pancreatic duct is almost always posteromedially related to the bile duct and only very rarely is it located anteriorly, at which point it would be at risk with a um, sphincterotomy when doing ERCP. Moving on now to the pancreas. The pancreas is an exocrine and an endocrine gland. Its exocrine function is obviously to do with digestion and its endocrine function to do with um, insulin secretion. The gland is a funny shaped organ sitting in the retroperitoneum and traveling transversely and in a superior direction um, in the retroperitoneum. It has a number of parts. This includes the head, which is the broadest part of the pancreas and sits in the C-shaped concavity of the duodenum. The uncinate process is a sort of posterior projection or sort of wedge-shaped area of the pancreatic head um, that goes behind the superior mesenteric vein and artery and in front of the aorta. The neck is then a projection from the head. It's thought to be the narrowest portion. And this then leads on to the body of the pancreas, which passes from the neck and goes gently upwards across the left renal vein, the aorta, the left cruise of the diaphragm, the left psoas muscle, lower pole of the left um, adrenal gland, across the hilum of the left kidney, and then finishes at the um, tail with the tail of the pancreas in the splenic hilum or very close to the splenic hilum. Some important relations is the splenic artery, which travels like a uh, little dragon across the top of the uh, posterior surface of the pancreas, and you can often see it peeking its head above the uh, top of the pancreas in its course. And also the splenic vein, which runs in a fibrous groove in the posterior aspect of the pancreas. I also already mentioned earlier in the episode that the splenic vein joins with the superior mesenteric vein behind the neck of the pancreas to become the portal vein. Anteriorly, the pancreas has the transverse mesocolon attached on its sort of lower anterior surface as well. The arterial supply of the pancreas is um, sequential. So the head of the pancreas and the uncinate process is typically supplied by the superior and inferior pancreaticoduodenal arteries, which run in that C-shaped concavity of the duodenum and supply branches into the head and uncinate process. 
The neck, body and tail are supplied um, by branches of the splenic artery. One of these is the largest and is named the arteria pancreatica magna, but then it's also supplied by smaller vessels along the course of the splenic artery. The venous drainage of the pancreas is by multiple small veins. The neck, body and tail again will mostly drain into the splenic vein and the head will drain into the superior pancreaticoduodenal vein and the inferior pancreaticoduodenal vein. The lymphatic drainage of the pancreas follows the arteries, so it follows nodes along the splenic hilum, along the splenic artery, um, more proximally into the common hepatic artery and back to the um, celiac and superior mesenteric nodes. One last anatomical variation to talk about is the annular pancreas, which is quite uncommon, but basically during the rotation of the two buds, you can end up with a complete ring of pancreatic tissue around the duodenum. And the duct system itself will also completely encircle the duodenum and join the main pancreatic duct. So that's something to be aware of, and it can cause compression of the duodenum at that point and require surgical intervention. And that's it for hepatobiliary and pancreatic anatomy, embryology, and variations. I hope that was useful. Remember, once again, please rate, review, and subscribe. It helps other people find this podcast. It's time to close up. Thanks for listening to First Incision. If you have any comments or feedback, send us a message at firstincisionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at First Incision. Happy studying!